0: good morning. Welcome to Eastern Shore Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm so thrilled that you have decided to tune in this week. I certainly hope that today's message will be both encouraging to you, but also I pray that it will be convicting. You can find out more about our church by visiting www.myesbc.net. God bless you and look forward to seeing you soon at church. Again, you can open up your Bibles to... Luke chapter 6 verses 27 through 28 and before we begin reading there I would say that during the days of Jesus's ministry he might have been one of the most loved and yet also one of the most vilified and hated individuals of his era he was clearly loved he was loved by his followers he was loved by his disciples Uh, and he was also loved by those people But yet, those seemed to be the very first people that abandoned him when he needed him the most. Or, whenever Jesus' teachings got to be a little difficult, hard to understand, or would call for too much obedience, those are the same people that would sort of leave Jesus. So, there were times when Jesus was really well-loved, well-liked, and yet there were also times where Jesus was very much so hated. In particular, there was one group of people that really hated Jesus, Jesus, and that was the Pharisees. And yet, there were times in Jesus' ministry when he looked at the Pharisees, and one might say that Jesus didn't dispose upon them the same amount of grace that he did with those that might have been following him originally. The Pharisees were enormously scared of losing their power, their prestige, their income, uh, their position socially among the people, and so Jesus was a tremendous threat to them. And so at every turn, Jesus seemed to be confronted by these men who constantly seemed to trap him and to ask him difficult questions to try to have him say something that might be blasphemous or say something that might go against the teachings of Scripture uh, or might put Jesus at odds with the holy people or the religious elite of the day. They hated Jesus not because he called them names, but because he threatened their security and all the lifestyle that they had for, him, for themselves. Jesus, by the way, had lots of enemies. On one side, he had fickle followers who left him, and yet on the other side, he had the Pharisees. So it seemed that no matter where Jesus went, there were always enemies surrounding him. Interestingly enough, Jesus, I believe, treated both sides the same. Jesus treated his followers and the Pharisees with compassion, with patience, with love, and yes, truth. And by the way, sometimes that truth that Jesus would deliver to both his followers and the Pharisees was biting. It was a harsh truth. It was a difficult truth. And however, Jesus loved both of those groups the same. Jesus loved his enemies and And every day he walked on planet earth was a day that we have as an example of how we should treat others who do not always agree with us, who do not always align their lives with uh, the same alignments that we have. After all, we live in a broad world and most people uh, in in the world today don't uh, live by the same biblical standard that we live by, as the same as, by the way, as functions in Jesus' day as well. Uh, Most of the world did not live the way Jesus lived. They didn't have the same priorities or standards that Jesus had, and yet Jesus still loved them and responded to them in kindness. So this morning, I want you to ask yourself this question, how do I respond to hate? How do I respond to hate? Because everywhere that Jesus went, he was confronted with hatred, hatred mainly for himself. And so the answer, I believe, comes in three different ways. If you want to, you can fill in uh, these three blanks. One, you could respond to hate by rejecting the person. You can say, well, that person doesn't like me. That person's my enemy. Therefore, I'm going to cast that person aside. I'm no longer going to speak to that person, love that person, talk to that person. That person is, as you've read or or seen in the movies, uh, that person is dead to me. Okay, so you can just reject them. Or the the next thing, which I believe the the second R there is probably the most uh, used. It's the reflect. You can either reject the person or you can reflect their attitude. So you become the mirror in which that person sees the scope of your life. So when that person brings to you hatred, anger, vitriol, malice, whatever word you want to use, you can reflect that back at them. So whatever attitude they bring to you, you in course have the same attitude back at them. So if they cuss at you, you cuss at them. Anybody ever experience road rage? Okay. Maybe you're driving down the road. And maybe you didn't stop at a stop sign, or maybe you didn't go at that green light, and you've got that person, and they let you know that you are number one in their book. And so you get angry, and you say, oh, no, sir, you're number one. Ever been there before? Don't, don't let me know if you have. Or if someone says something hard or, or a biting criticism of you or who you are or of something you said or a job you've done. And so in turn, you turn right back around and you say something biting towards them, a harsh criticism of them. So in many ways, we as human beings, we sort of reflect the attitudes that are brought to us. Or there is that other R, which is respect. Do we respect that person? Now this is the really challenging thing to do. Because when someone comes to you with hatred or they're speaking ill of you or they're persecuting you, it's very difficult to respect them and yet it seems that that's exactly what Jesus does over and over and over again. Jesus respects that person as a fellow image bearer. He's been created uh, in God's image. That person has a plan for their life. Jesus died for that person. So when we look at a person, a human being, and we ask ourselves, why is this person doing this to, to me? We have to respect that person, love that person, even if it's very difficult to love or respect that person. We have lots of challenges in our lives, and perhaps one of the greatest challenges that we have is to love the person that is difficult to love. So this morning, as we come to Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 28, uh, I'll give you the background just briefly. Jesus has just concluded delivering the Beatitudes and the woes. We spent a long time on those pieces of Scripture. He's concluding, or he's, excuse me, continuing the greatest sermon ever told. You see this, by the way, the Sermon on the Mount. It's reflected in Luke, and it's also uh, reflected where por- or, or the main portion of it, excuse me, is in Matthew. You can go and read there. So he's preaching to his followers. He's delivering the sermon Sermon on the Mount. And here, Jesus gives to his followers the most difficult teaching I believe found in the Sermon on the Mount, which is to love your enemies. Now, a- again, you have to consider the context in which Jesus is speaking. He's speaking primarily to Jews, and Jews hated a lot of people. I mean, they hated a lot of people, a lot of folks. So, when Jesus says to love your enemies, the Jews are sitting there thinking, "Wait, which enemy should I love?" because they had a pantheon of enemies. There were lots of enemies to hate. The Jews hated a lot of folks. They hated Romans. They hated the corrupt police, government officials who ruled over them. They hated tax collectors. They hated Gentiles. They hated Samaritans. They hated the infirm, the sick, the destitute, and the weak, so much so that they cast them outside of their city walls. They were literally dead to them, as I said earlier. They really didn't like lepers a lot either. They hated much of the religious elite. So when you think about it, hatred came pretty easy if you were a Jew living in Jesus' day. So when Jesus said to love your enemies, this was a particularly hard concept for the Jews to really understand. Now, again, when you read the scripture that Jesus gives to us back in the ancient times, and we transpose that over the 2018, uh, here we are in July, we're more than halfway through 2018, and you think about where we are as a country and where we are as a people and where we are as a church, hatred comes pretty easily and naturally for us as well. We're not a very peaceful people. Uh, we're really not. And so the words that Jesus gives to us are really challenging because we have to look deep inside ourselves and we have to ask ourselves who really is our enemy? A greater concept, you might say, would be to ask yourself the question, who really is my neighbor? Because Jesus gives us the the great commandment, right, which is to love thy neighbor as thyself. That's a real challenge these days. And so Jesus expounds on some of these topics and so let's, let's read today's scripture and if you will, uh, I hope you brought your, your Greek lexicon because in every single point, we're gonna be looking at what these Greek words really mean and how they impact our lives. So Luke chapter six, verses 27 through 28 says this, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, those are some challenging concepts. Even if you don't look at the Greek words, those are some challenging words written in our everyday English. Because most of us have experienced abuse. Most of us have experienced being cursed. And most of us have experienced some form of persecution. And it's very difficult to say, well, I'm going to love that person, bless that person, and pray for that person while they hate me, abuse me, and do all sorts of persecution to me. So this morning, let's look at three really short points, okay, if we, if we can. Loving your neighbor requires, loving your neighbor requires, loving your enemy requires, Roman numeral one, sympathy. It requires sympathy. It requires understanding. In verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. So what does Jesus mean when he says, but I say to you who hear? Were there people in the crowd not listening? Is the commandment that Jesus is about to give, does it exclude people that can't hear, that are deaf? And of course not. That's not true. The command that was to follow that statement was universal to all of Jesus' followers. So we need to understand that there are some portions of the Bible that are written in the context in the day of that were maybe applicable to the Israelites. But we need to understand this one command, it is applicable not only to the followers of Jesus' day, but it also is applicable to us today. This is a command that has consequences for me and for you today. The Greek word, by the way, that Jesus is using is akouo. It means more than simply those who can hear. It it means to comprehend or to understand. Jesus is speaking beyond simple understanding of the command to love our enemies. This is what Jesus is really saying. Jesus is telling the hearer, consider your enemy. Understand them. Put yourself in their shoes. Walk a mile in their sandals. Essentially, Jesus is saying, for those of you who can understand this command, consider your enemy and love them, is what Jesus is saying. When you translate the passage in that manner, it adds a level of depth that is otherwise not seen. Consider this statement. It's impossible to love your enemy unless you understand them. I don't know who coined the phrase. It's one of my favorite phrases, by the way, Uh, especially when I'm dealing with people. One of my favorite phrases is this hurt people hurt people. You ever heard that before? Hurt people hurt people. It's when you stop to think about all the people that you say might be your enemy, it helps to understand why they act the way that they act. Maybe they're hurting because they've been hurt themselves. And I will say this uh, almost 10 times out of 10. People that hurt people have been hurt by other people. They've always been hurt by someone else. Maybe there's been abuse in their past. And we all know people who are victims of abuse I've given counseling to people, tons of people, who have been victims of abuse. And what's really interesting is I would say nine times out of ten, the people that are being abused, the person that's abusing them has also been abused. Have you seen this? And so they're just carrying forth the abuse that's been done to their lives. Maybe they've been deeply hurt, they've been disappointed, they've been disillusioned. Over my 20 years of ministry, I've met dozens of people who are very cold to me, not because anything I did, but they were projecting their hurt and anger onto me. And several of us have been victims of that before, right? You didn't do anything wrong, but that person is angry and upset, and they're just projecting that anger and upsetness on you. Case in point. I arrived here on the Eastern Shore some seven and a half years ago, and I discovered that, now it's not, I didn't know this until I got here. You know, when you're a pastor, you, you know, they, they tell you everything, but don't tell you everything, right? Because I can they tell you everything. But when I got here some seven and a half years ago, I, I discovered that there were many people in our own church that had been victims of nasty church splits over the years. And you know what I'm talking about. I, I see, as I, it's really funny, as I'm looking out in the audience, I see several of you saying, yep, that's right. When I came to the Eastern Shore, I had no idea how many churches, prominent churches, had been formed, not naturally, but really abnormally, through really nasty, hurtful church splits. And these splits were difficult, and they caused pain, and heartache among the people that were there in the midst of it. And to this day, many of our church members are still hurt over the actions of fellow church members and, sad to say, pastors, which I'll say this about pastors we're people too. And we make mistakes. And we say things we shouldn't say. And we do things we ought not to do. And it's not because, uh, a lot of times, it's not because we mean to, it just is because we're human. And I've known lots of pastors who are phenomenal pastors, and I've known pastors that were not that great of pastors, but we're all connected by one simple truth. We're all just human. We're all human. And again, as I began to uh, come here to this place, and as I began to get to know more and more of the people, I, I, I realized very quickly that 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 there was a significant amount of distrust of me when I arrived here seven and a half years ago, and it wasn't because of anything that I had done. It was, I hadn't done anything. I hadn't been here long enough to do anything. But one of the things that I had experienced when I came here, and I began to ask questions of why Why do people act this way? Why What's the deal? And people told me, well, that person, they were a part of that church split. And they were really hurt over that. And when I understood that, I said, okay, so really they're not mad at me. They're mad at the past. They're upset at the past. That they're hurt. And so now it's my job to try to, to, try to heal that somehow. Well, one day I, I was a little frustrated, I have to be honest with you, and I called a, a former pastor of mine, a friend of mine, and, and I said, man, I'm just, I don't know what to do. By the way, pastors don't have all the answers. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. But I didn't know what to do. And so I called and, and I said, you know, what, what should I do? And he, he gave me some really simple advice. He said, Stuart, this is what you ought to do. He said, you ought to get up every day and love them. I mean love them. No matter what the attitude is. No matter what the, the situation is, you love that person. You don't stop loving that person. You say kind things to that person. You encourage that person. You build those people up. And he said, over time, over time, that person is going to see enough Jesus in you that they're going to come around. And, and you know what? I took that advice. And do you know what? It works. It works. If we just stop for a second and consider what is the driving force behind a lot of the problems in our world today, whether it be in our church or any other place, if we stop for a moment and say, you know what, why is that person angry? Why does that person hate me? It's probably because they've been hurt and abused themselves, and they're a victim uh, themselves of pain and and a past that is hurtful. So our job is to love in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, look at what Peter said. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. For love, what? What does love do? Covers a what? Multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And, and Peter was right. My pastor was right. Not only were they right for me, but they're right for you as well. So do you have an angry, vengeful relative? Do you have an angry, vengeful coworker? And do you have a boss that's out to get you? Is there a bully at school? Of course, you're not in school right now, but one day you will be back there. Are, are people running you down? Are they speaking poorly of you behind your back And you're hearing about these things and it's hurting you? You, you ever had that, that instance when you're walking down a hallway, whether it be at, at work or at school or, heaven forbid, here at church, and you see that person and you're thinking, that person Right, and they're walking towards you and they're thinking the same thing, that person. And, and, and have you ever done that? You ever seen somebody in a hallway and you just turn around and walk the other way? Well, I mean, what's the answer to all that? Well, I'll tell you, friends, the love is the answer. The Jesus style of love. Stop for a second and think about what might drive their behavior and know that somewhere down deep, that person, your enemy, is hurting. And the only way to snuff out the hurt is to continue to love them. So how should we love How far do we go with the love that Jesus wants us to go? Well, the word that Jesus uses here for love is that agape love. That word agape, by the way, is used 135 times throughout the entirety of the New Testament. It is the word, when you see love used in the New Testament, that's the word generally you see over and over and over again. It's that agape love. It's, it means more than just love. It means to love someone without any expectation of reciprocal love. It's the primary way that God loves each and every one of us. He loves us with agape love, not expecting anything in return. But I just love you. In Ephesians chapter 3 Verses 16 through 19, listen to what Paul says. I pray that out of the riches of his glory, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit and in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you will be, be rooted and grounded in love. May have the power together with all the saints to comprehend the length and the width and the height and the depth of his love. And to know that the love of Christ surpasses the knowledge that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. I heard a pastor friend of mine share a a really awesome sermon about that one particular scripture. When you think about it, think of God's love as a pool. Think about God's love as an ocean. And with that thought, go back to this scripture. Comprehend the length of that ocean, the width of that ocean, the height of that ocean, and the depth of that ocean of love that God gives to us. And I love this last part, that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. Friends, we ought to love, we ought to be drowning in God's ocean of love. The heights, the depths, the length. Paul says we should be filled with it. That everywhere we go, we ought to be drowning in the ocean of God's love so that other people can drown with us. Loving your enemies, your neighbor, it requires sympathy, but it also requires selflessness. It requires selflessness. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. I've heard it said that I better master selfishness before it masters me better master selfishness before it masters me. Uh, do, do any of you struggle with selfishness? Well, I, I thought maybe we might take a test this morning. You like tests? I do. They're cool. So, number one, if the last time you said, I love you, and you really meant it, you were looking in the mirror, you might have a problem with self. <laughs> Gaston in Beauty of the Beast. Remember that? Staring at himself. Number two, if your most memorable, excuse me, if your most memorable vacation only required one airline ticket, you might have a problem with self. That actually sounds good to me sometimes. (laughs) Number three, if you always know more than the people you hire to do a job, you might have a problem with self. Now, some of us are guilty of that, y'all. Come on now. Number four, if you've come to the conclusion that nobody really knows how to do anything without your advice, you might have a problem with self. Anybody there? Okay. <laughs> Number five, if you've already come to the conclusion that this sermon applies to everyone in the room except you, you might have a problem with self. <laughs> That's a good one. From my perspective, selflessness has to be taught from my perspective selflessness has to be taught my children without pointing out how to share how to be giving how to be compassionate how to be charitable might become the most selfish people on planet earth if i left them to their own accord Chances are you've probably had the same sorts of conversations along the way with your children. The bottom line is that we are born with a natural proclivity to selfishness. That's why Jesus turns our natural proclivity into some type of a supernatural power. Jesus tells us that we are to do good to those that hate us. Now come again, Jesus. Let's rewind on that one for just a second. Do good to those that hate us. How does that work? You want me to do good to the people that hate me? I don't know that I can follow you down that, that 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 line of thinking. Well, the Greek word here that Jesus uses for hate is maseo. Maseo. It means hate, but it means more than that. It means to pursue hatred with uh, with abundance. It means to detest. It means to persecute. The Greek r- word here, it's where we derive our word for miserable. Miseo, miserable. It's also where we get our word for misery or miserly. So Jesus is not telling us that we should do good to those who slightly dislike us. We are to do good to those that utterly hate us and look upon us with vile contempt to the point of persecution and death. It means that we are to show grace to the very ones who might abuse us and be mean to us and to hurt us. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 14, "'Blessed are those who persecute you. "'Bless them and do not curse them.'" One of my favorite stories out of World War II, comes in the form of Louis Zamperini. Uh, I've talked about Louis Zamperini before here in church, but Louis Zamperini was a, was a, a pilot, and he was, had this extraordinary life. He, he was an Olympian. He, he shook the hand of Adolf Hitler uh, in, in the Olympics, and he was so fast. He set world records, but he also had a very great passion for his country, and so he served in the conflict of World War II. Well, Louis Zamperini was shot down and he was left in open water for 40 days until finally a, a Japanese boat pulled up and rescued him, or so he thought. Well, that Japanese boat, they took him in, but they put him into a prisoner of war camp where he met the Japanese war criminal, Watanabe, and they called this man the bird, for those of you that have seen the movie Unbroken, you've seen sort of the, the title aspects of those interactions with uh, Zamperini and the bird. The bird would beat Louis almost to the point of death several times while he was there in that POW camp. He, he would make him do extreme things. He would torture him. He would keep him up for hours and hours and hours and never let him sleep. And he would make, make him do hard labor. Well, after World War II ended, Louis Zamperini was freed from this POW camp, and he came back home, and he began to drink. And I mean really, really, really drink. And one of his friends invited him to a a Billy Graham crusade. And it was at that moment that Louis Zamperini remembered a promise that he had made in that boat while he was out adrift for 40 days. He told God, God, if you save me from this situation, I'll give you my everything. I'll give you my life. Well, that was a delayed promise. Zamperini ends up going to this Billy Graham crusade, and he ends up getting radically saved, puts down the bottle, and becomes an evangelist of sorts. Well, the story goes, in the 1950s, long after World War II had ended, Zamperini wanted to go back to Japan. He went back to Japan because he wanted to find the bird, this this war criminal that tortured him for years. He wanted to find Watanabe because he wanted to let him know that he loved him and that he forgave him and that he wanted him to know Jesus. Do we have that video?
1: When you went back to Japan, you... You shared the gospel with some of the very guards that mistreated you and you wanted to meet the bird but you were told the bird was dead. He wasn't. But you didn't know that at the time. But you wrote him a letter. Do you have that letter with you? Yeah, I brought it with me. This is the letter that Louis wrote to the bird. You want me to read it? Would you read it please? (laughs) Okay. This is to Matsushiro Watanabe. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and original punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live under the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you, and Christ even said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Tsugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed harikari, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you, and now I would hope that you would also become a Christian. Amen. That's uh, forgiveness.
0: If you're holding on to anger, if you're holding on to hatred, I'll remind you of Mark Twain's words, and you can fill in this blank. Anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. Anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than can do anything on which it is poured. I would also remind you about Jesus' example in Luke 23, verse 34. Many of you remember that classic piece of scripture as Jesus has been tortured on the cross and he's naked and he's bleeding and then at the foot of the cross, you've got the soldiers and they're casting lots for his clothing. They're mocking him. These are the same soldiers that beat him and nailed him to the cross. Look what Jesus says here. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing and the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Oh, friend, let me tell you, Jesus is not telling us to do anything that he himself did not demonstrate in his own life. Loving people. And so loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, it requires sympathy, selflessness. And then Roman numeral three is salty speech. Salty speech. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those. Listen to that. Bless those, not bless out, by the way, you can't. Can't put the word out there after bless, no matter how much you'd like to. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Blessing and prayer. And Jesus tells us to bless those who curse us. Again, another level or lesson, excuse me, of opposites. Usually when people curse us, we tend to reflect those actions and attitudes back onto the people that inflict them onto us in the first place. We let our attitudes and actions be controlled by the bad words and deeds of other people. Again, it's really important that we understand the Greek, the word that Jesus used here for bless is eugaleo. It's where we get our word eulogy from. Now, as a a pastor, I have had the numerous opportunities to share eulogies. Chances are many of you have probably been to funeral. I, I don't even know how many funerals I've done over the past seven and a half years of being your pastor, but it has been Many. And over those years, I've had the opportunity to eulogize some fantastic people, some phenomenal people, unbelievable individuals with tremendous Christian characters. And a eulogy is that it's a blessing over someone that's already departed. And in that eulogy, you share the highlights of that person's life and character. It's not where you shine light on the flaws. Those are called awkward eulogies. And I've Seen a few of those. Amen, Josh? (laughs) Well, we've seen a few of those around here. But a eulogy is where you highlight the the bright side of the person, where you lift that person up and you say, I want to remember this person for this, not for the troubled past or maybe the, the, the time in their life before they were Christians. Eulogies are important. The eulogy is when we speak well of someone. It's when we remember the good things, highlight the achievements. And he reiterates the word blessed by telling his followers that they should pray for those that abuse us. So understand what Jesus is saying. So when people speak poorly of me, you speak well of them. So when people speak poorly of you, you speak well of them. Now that is a challenge. You compliment them. You pick out the good parts of their character and you shine light on those aspects of their life. That is a challenging thing to do. Basically, we are to use our language in a salty way. No, you don't use salty language against them. You use that salt that the Holy Spirit provides to season your language. If you will, turn your, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, and you'll see some more clarification that Jesus offers to us. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if your salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Paul even offers further uh, clarification in Colossians chapter 4 verse 6. He says this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to, how you may ought to answer each person. So our speech should be salty, gracious, peaceful. It should be pleasant. As believers, we don't to initiate uh, attacks, we don't drop four letter words or seek to embarrass somebody out on Twitter or Facebook or in real life. That's what the enemy would want us to do to our accusers. And yet, time and time again, as people accuse Jesus, he never did that to them. Ever. It's simply not the Jesus way. So remember, Loving your neighbor requires sympathy. It requires selflessness. It requires salty speech. It means to bring blessing, not cursing. It means to pray for and not push down. I'll leave you with this one last thought. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 through 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you'll heap burning coals on his head And the Lord will reward you. Go the Jesus way and watch what you say. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?